Out front next, protesters meeting President Biden in Michigan, even as the president signs his toughest executive order yet on Israel. We're live in Michigan with a special report on what the voters there really seem to want from the president. Plus, Ukraine sinking a massive Russian ship and launching a missile barrage, all while the military is in massive turmoil. The head of the military fired. Tonight, the biggest turning point yet in the Ukraine-Russia war. And the numbers are in. Biden beating Trump when it comes to cash on hand. Where is most of Trump's money going to? Let's go out front. And good evening. I'm Erin Burnett. Out front tonight, Biden goes to battle, taking on Trump in a fight for union votes. We now have, in large part because of you and organized labor, the strongest economy in the whole damn world. We do. Now, Biden was speaking to workers from the United Auto Workers. Uh, Now, it's one of the biggest unions in the country and a union that has given Biden its official endorsement over Trump, which is significant. Today's event, though, was small, and there was a specific and important reason for that. CNN is learning that all day security was tight around Biden. People not able to get close to him, not able to have big crowd because of concerns about protesters who are livid about Biden's open-ended support of Israel. And there's a reason for that security concern. This was the scene outside just moments ago. Protesters gathering outside a Biden event in Michigan. And that's not the first time. I mean, just days ago in Biden's first big campaign rally of the year in Virginia, the president was interrupted at least a dozen times by protesters calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. And look at your screen. Demonstrations now taking place at just about every single Biden event. No matter what that was, it should be built. Well, tonight, the president is in Michigan, home to the largest Arab-American community in the United States. He's there to court union votes. But that community, the community of Arab-Americans there, has turned on Biden in the polls. And Biden needs that voting bloc more than ever. I mean, Arab Americans turned out overwhelmingly for Biden in 2020. In Michigan alone, 146,000 Muslim Americans turned out to vote in 2020. And uh, in counties, uh, heavily uh, Arab American counties, more than two-thirds of voters voted for Biden. Now, keep in mind, Biden's margin in victory overall in Michigan was 155,000 votes. So these votes matter big time. And Michigan is, again, of course, just one of a handful of states that is actually going to decide if Biden wins re-election or not. And that is why, before flying to Michigan, Biden signed an executive order targeting Israeli settlers who attack Palestinians in the West Bank. But executive order sounds big. The real question, though, is whether an executive order that actually only targets four individual people, as this one does, whether it will move the needle. Jeff Zeleny is out front live in Detroit to begin our coverage. And Jeff, you have spent uh, the day talking to voters there in Michigan, primary, of course, coming up there as well. How worried should Biden and Democrats be? Well, Aaron, they would be foolish not to be worried, uh, not just for the images of the protests we're seeing, but just the sheer raw math. And you'll remember in 2016, Donald Trump carried Michigan by 10,000 votes. Of course, Joe Biden won it uh, four years later. But this all hangs over this next campaign uh, for the White House. And what was key to his victory, of course, was building that broad coalition of younger voters, black voters, Latino voters, suburban and urban. The question, though, can he rebuild it to win a second term? It's like two, just the two old white guys duking it out. 
Reverend Charles Williams is bracing for a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, exhausted at the notion of a nine-month battle for the White House. Some may feel, I don't have any hope in a Donald Trump or I don't have a hope in a, in a, in a Joe Biden. As pastor of King Solomon Baptist Church in Detroit, Williams was on the front lines of soaring turnout among black voters four years ago. He believes Biden can't win re-election through fear of Trump alone. It's almost like your big brother or your big sister saying, the boogeyman is under the bed, the boogeyman is under the bed. Sooner or later, you figure, you know, is it really a boogeyman? You realize maybe, maybe this guy ain't the boogeyman. One of the biggest tests facing the president is piecing together a vast fraying coalition, particularly in Michigan. Trump carried the state in 2016, along with Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. But Biden flipped all three in 2020, a blue wall that led to victory. Cease fire now! His challenges are complicated by anger among Muslims and Arab Americans over the Israel-Hamas war, made clear by relentless protests. Including as the president visited Michigan. Uh, he's just not somebody that I can trust. Uh, Adam Abu Salah worked as a field organizer for the Biden campaign four years ago. He said he will not vote for the president again, seeing him as complicit in deaths of innocent Palestinians. By taking this stand, do you wonder if it will help elect Donald Trump? It probably will. We have seen four years of Trump, we have seen four years of Biden, and people don't really uh, see a difference between their presidency. <laughs> It was nearly four years ago when Biden pointedly presented himself as a bridge to the future. Look, I view myself as a bridge, not as anything else. There's an entire generation of leaders you saw stand behind me. They are the future of this country. They're the people who are going to... Those cheers rang out in the gymnasium of Detroit's Renaissance High, where these students are now following the presidential race. I don't feel like he represents the young voter demographic at all. It's the first time Imani Williams and her friends can vote. Dante Parker said a vote for Biden is hardly guaranteed. We've been stuck in this system for far too long. Maybe we need to venture outside of it to really make some, po some progress now. The Biden campaign tells CNN it will draw sharp distinctions with Trump and earn the support of voters concerned about their rights, their pocketbooks, and our democracy. We are not happy with Biden, but we understand that the other option is not an option that's favorable to us. Norman Clement said voters are eager to hear what Biden would do in a second term, not simply what he's done or tried to do. Are you more worried about people voting for Trump or more worried about uh, young voters and others not voting at all? I'm worried about the protest vote. My message to them is that we did that in 2016. We held our vote. We, folks didn't come out. And that is one reason the president is still here in Detroit tonight, Aaron. He was scheduled to leave actually a couple hours ago, but he's meeting with more uh, union workers. And you saw those uh, protests there as well. There is no doubt that uh, he has significant support here among organized labor. But the question is, how broad is all of that? A first test will come in the Michigan primary, February 27th. Some voters are saying they plan to vote uncommitted. Of course, many Democrats here will support Joe Biden. All right. Thank you very much. And fascinating. He's staying an extra couple of hours already uh, to meet uh, with these small groups of, of union workers, obviously significant. Van Jones is out front now along with David Urban. Uh, Van, I want to start with something we just heard, though, in Jeff's reporting. Adam Abusalah, a former field organizer for Biden, telling Jeff that he will not vote for Biden again, even knowing that it may tr uh, help Trump. He says Biden is just some not somebody I can trust. How big of a problem is this for Biden right now, Van? 
It's a, it's a big problem for him right now. Uh, you, there are four syllables that are aimed at him. Uh, genocide Joe. Uh, that is becoming something that you're hearing from the younger people, from the younger voters, from the Arab American community. Uh, I think that uh, it, he can turn it around. Uh, but you've got to be honest. Right now, you've got disappointment uh, in the base with how he's handling uh, the war in Gaza. Uh, now, the reality is that Joe Biden has uh, deep ties and long friendships in the Muslim community, Arab community. He, he can go back there. He can get back there. But he's got his work cut out for him right now. So, David, you know, this, this comes as Biden is staying an extra two hours, Jeff is now reporting, to meet with more union groups. He was scheduled to go back. He knows this matters, right? And, and certainly if you're having trouble in one area, you got to shore up another. And, and it appears he's got that message loud and clear. He got the UAW endorsement. But Trump is actually making a real play. And we see that, you know, with deteriorating uh, union support for Democrats over time. But now Trump met with the Teamsters to try to get their endorsement. Uh, it, it, he thinks this is a real chance, uh, David. The Teamsters VP at large, John Palmer, did not attend to it. He refused. Last night, he told me there's no chance Trump will get that endorsement. Here's why. He is not going to do anything for labor. He never has done anything for labor. And frankly, he's not a trustworthy individual. Well, we'll see what happens, right? He says there's no way that endorsement's going to happen. But, right. David, where, where are we with this? I mean, Trump has made this, this yeah. meeting with the Teamsters. It's 1.3 million strong union. Will he look bad if he does not get that endorsement? No, I, I think, Aaron, look, I, you know, you saw the UAW president on, uh, I think it was last week. I can't even, it's all a blur these days. But it, he, he admitted, the UAW president admitted Right, that that the majority of overwhelming majority of his rank and file members will probably end up voting for Trump, and so the, the, the President Trump going to meet with the Teamsters uh, leadership in Washington, showing respect, asking for their vote, I think is going to bear a lot of fruit. If he wasn't invited to go to the UAW, or he would have gone and asked for their vote, um, you know, it's a rule of politics. You need to ask for people's vote to get it, and and I think that showing up and, and putting in the work is going to bear a lot of fruit for him. Look, his his rise amongst people of color, African-Americans and Hispanics, it, it, it's because they, they are following white working class voters, what they did with Reagan and, and Trump in 2016. They're following, they're moving towards Trump because of his policies. They're not big fans of democratic wokeness and, and, and the like. And, and so I think you're going to see that slide continue to the Republican Party is, is you know, educated white, college educated white folks kind of slide over to the Democratic Party. It's kind of through the looking glass here. Uh, it is uh, race plays such a role in all of this, it's, and it plays uh, a role all the way down as well. Van, the House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, today called for Republican Congressman Troy Nels to apologize uh, for comments he made, specifically comments about the Democratic Congressman Cory Bush. She admitted that the DOJ is investigating her for using campaign funds to pay her husband for security services. Uh, and then here's uh, what was said: She doesn't even support the police. But the idea to pay her thug uh, money to try to help protect her this and that for what? Maybe if she wouldn't be so loud all the time, maybe she wouldn't be getting threats. Uh, to pay her thug money, Van. Bush has called those comments racist tropes. Nail says they aren't. There's no nail to apologize. Um, you know, I, I should remind viewers, Nels is the one who called me young lady when I was interviewing him during the speaker vote for Kevin McCarthy. <laughs> um, but, he did a good job that night. <laughs> uh, you were, we were all together that night. Uh, Van, um, pay her thug money. Um, yeah. What's that? Well, I mean, uh, uh, Google how many times he's used the word thug to refer to a white man. Uh, Google the number of times he's used the word loud to refer to a white woman. 
Uh, I mean, Hakeem Jeffries is not somebody who routinely goes around and calls uh, people out for stuff like this, but this is just way over the line. Uh, that, that, that is a, a, a slur that is almost always only used for black men and for black women. And it's, it's ridiculous. And, and listen, when Hakeem Jeffries, who literally, he, he almost never does this. When he says, it's look, true. you are over the line, you're over the line. David? Yes. Yeah, Speaker Jeffries is, is an honorable guy. Aaron, as you pointed out, though, earlier, just a few seconds ago, um, uh, Congressman Nels is an equal opportunity offender um, saying some really outrageous kind of things to you that night we were on the set. I thought was, was kind of over the line there. So I'm not quite certain it's his, uh, his you know, his, his remarks were, were, uh, were trying to be racist. I think he just may be, he may be, need to be more measured in his comments for everybody. All right. Thank you both very much. I appreciate it. And next, my exclusive interview with the former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. Is there about to be a major ceasefire deal? Plus, Ukraine tonight in turmoil. We are learning that Zelensky has fired his top general, but there's no formal announcement or talk of any replacement. This could be the most significant moment of the war. We're live in Kyiv tonight. And also, Nikki Haley now seizing on Trump's cash crunch. Do you really think he's going to win? against Joe Biden when he's spending all of that money on legal fees? He's not. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Tonight, new video into CNN showing utter destruction in the southern Gaza city of Khan Yunis as the Israeli military conducts extensive operations there. Uh, neighborhoods leveled and completely unrecognizable, abandoned. Uh, in the video that we have here, uh, you don't actually see a single human being. It comes as Israel's far-right finance minister is slamming President Biden's executive order, uh, which just came out. It targets uh, violent Israeli settlers in the West Bank. And the minister accusing Biden of cooperating with a, quote, anti-Semitic lie spread by Israel's enemies. Out front now, the former Israeli prime minister, Naftali uh, Bennett, uh, who is uh, visiting the U.S. here for just a few days. Uh, and obviously you uh, have been on the ground in Israel since October 7th. What is your response to Biden's executive order? Well, I think it's uh, unnecessary. Uh, I think um, in Israel we prosecute any violence, any criminal activity we don't need any external help on doing it. And I have to say that it's marginal. The, what, what's called violent, uh, violence of settlers is marginal. We're talking about a 50% decrease year on year. Uh, last year it was- at, In that uh, violence. In, in that violence. And, and to begin with, it's not big numbers. We're taking care of it. I think it's inflated in order to create some false uh, symmetry between the, the Palestinian violence and the settler violence. So 
uh, we're on top of it. We, we don't need any foreign assistance to uh, prosecute that sort of thing. So Israeli special forces conducted a raid this week at the West, the West Bank Hospital. Of course, you've seen the footage. I'm just going to play it again here. So they're disguised as civilians and medical staff. Uh, one of them even has what's sort of like a bassinet for a baby. Uh, they went in. Uh, three Palestinians were killed that Israel claims uh, were terrorists, uh, that that was the point of the raid. Now, the hospital says that one of the men that was killed was receiving injuries, uh, was receiving treatment for injuries that he suffered in a rocket attack. And there's actually footage of him uh, in his hospital bed, obviously, prior to this uh, with his family. When you see these images, are you comfortable with these sorts of tactics, with dressing up as civilians and going into a hospital to kill terrorists? Well, the real question is, am I comfortable with terrorists using hospitals as their uh, safe haven? Because we're fighting terrorists who, you know, have no red lines, uh, do not uh, uh, abide to any law, and we're held to, held to a double, double standard because Hamas does whatever it wants and uses children and families as uh, human shields. And then when we have to go target those very Hamasniks who are using the hospital as a refuge, then we're being accused of... Uh, but this is a little bit different, at least in this case, right? If that guy is actually lying in a hospital bed injured, he wasn't using it as a refuge. He was being treated for injuries. To the best of my knowledge, we're talking about terrorists who did use the hospital as refuge, not because they were being treated. Uh, we have to look at every uh, incident. But by and large, what we've seen in Gaza and in the West Bank... Uh, in very big numbers is uh, Hamas using hospitals, schools, kindergartens as right. refuge. That's the real problem. Right. No, not, I understand. Not one in a thousand cases where mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're trying to tweezer them out from where they're hiding. Right. I understand completely what you're saying. I think everyone watching understands as well. But I, I do just want to push on that one point because it is so I, I dark. I say, actually, it's pretty impressive, uh, the operation, uh, sending soldiers who have to uh, disguise themselves mm. w within uh, terrorists and, and uh, abducting terrorists. That, and that's what we're going to do. We have to defend ourselves. So we'll ourselves. see more of that. We're going to see anything necessary I mean, because there are people in that hospital, a hospital could have been women, children, people having babies, that guy, even if a terrorist But we don't target injured. them. We don't target them. We don't mm -hmm. target, we never deliberately right. target women and children. But that guy was also injured. You know, if, if Osama bin Laden's in a hospital and he, his uh, thumb is uh, injured, uh, do you go in and kill him? The, the answer is yes. Okay. So the, the UN Relief Agency in Gaza says it's going to have to suspend its relief work across the entire Middle East uh, because, what, more than 20 governments now have shut down funding for UNRWA uh, after the Israeli intelligence. You have put forth uh, information that has been seen by these governments that 13 of the more than 13,000 Gaza uh, employees of UNRWA were involved in the October 7th attacks. Now, Prime Minister Netanyahu says that UNRWA must be eliminated. Obviously, it does provide, uh, it does do good work in the region in other ways. Do you think it should be eliminated completely? I think it should be uh, disbanded for two reasons. One is the tactical reason that indeed uh, dozens of its uh, workers are terrorists who, who went in, some of them went in and killed, murdered Israelis, which mm -hmm. is uh, the, the, and you know, participated in, in this massacre. But there's something bigger than that. Yeah. This agency, instead of solving the refugee problem, it eternalizes the refugee problem. You see, these refugees are great-grandchildren of refugees. It's the only case in, in the world where refugee yeah. status 
is bequeathed from one generation to another. So instead of solving it, they eternalize it. Yeah. You know, uh, in, in the War of Independence, th those uh, uh, Palestinians became refugees, but there were also 700,000 Jews that were became refugees kicked out of Arab countries, such as Morocco, Egypt, etc. And they didn't become refugees. We absorbed them, and, uh, and now they're full Israelis. So th there's a goal hmm. to keep the Palestinians m in misery, and I think UNRWA is part of the problem, not part of the solution. So um, I understand that, but I did want to provide some specific examples, because if you do want it eliminated, then what replaces the good that it does do? I mean, we were just looking up some numbers. 140 primary health care clinics. Seven million people get annual health visits from UNRWA-operated facilities. 200 schools operated. 500,000 students educated. Now, you can quibble with the numbers here and there, but those are significant things. Right. You eliminate it, that goes away, too. No, so clearly, we have to have those services continue, and there has to be some transitory period. We're not talking about cutting off, um, you know, day after day and, and, and having these Palestinians without solutions. But we have to look at an organization that became so rotten that some of its own employees went and murdered and massacred yeah. uh, Jews and it, the, this, the problem with its very mission. So there's going to be a transitory period, but we have to fix it. There have been reports that Hamas has given initial approval of a deal, that we've been hearing about a possible deal, right, that would pause uh, fighting for multiple weeks, right? That has not happened yet. This would be hugely significant if it happens. And then you would get the remainder of uh, Israeli hostages back, theoretically, according to what we've been hearing. Can you tell me anything about where the negotiation is, what it entails right now? Well, there are very uh, advanced negotiations going on between uh, the two sides. Um, and and with America, Qatar, Egypt uh, being involved in, in uh, trying to broker a deal, um, the parameters are how many of the uh, captives are going to be released, how many Palestinian terrorists will be released, and what sort of pause there will be. From Israel's perspective, uh, there is a degree of flexibility, but what we cannot do is finish the war without eradicating Hamas. That's the one uh, or main red line that we're focused on. Also, we don't want to release um, massive uh, murderers that'll go back and kill well, more Israelis. Well, what's the ratio? Is it, you know, I mean, so is there, and I understand that you can move one piece of a negotiation and something else that seems set changes, so I understand right. that. Well, I'm, I'm but, not negotiating, yeah. so I, it's hard right. for me to comment. What, what I would say is, uh, you know, the Hamas... Uh, abducted uh, men, women, children, and some of them are still there, 140. We have to bring them home, but we also have to eradicate Hamas. Is there a possibility that all 140 would come home as part of a deal at this point, or does that seem out of reach? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. appreciate your time, Prime Minister. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now Outfront next. Incredible video into Outfront. Ukraine claiming it has taken out a Russian warship. But behind the scenes of this massive attack in Crimea, the Ukrainian military is in turmoil. The top commander fired. What's going on? Plus CNN learning that embattled Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is digging in, refusing to step aside. And tonight, sources are telling us why. Tonight, incredible new video of what Ukraine and Russia both say was a massive Ukrainian strike on Crimea. You are looking at attack drones, and they're racing towards a Russian ship, ship that was in the sea off Crimea. The drones explode on impact. That's the massive fireball then that you see. Ukrainians say that ship was sunk. The massive show of force coming amid intense turmoil, though, behind the scenes in Ukraine. 
Turmoil that could change the course of the war and of history. There's been a week of cloak-and-dagger threats, backdoor negotiations. We understand that President Zelensky, after all this, has told the general leading the war for Ukraine that he's fired. Valery Zeluzhny credited with saving Kyiv from Putin in those first days of the war. He is a beloved figure in Ukraine. So this move does not come lightly, and it could signal something very significant. And Zeluzhny is not just going quietly. We understand he would not resign. And now in his CNN op-ed, he is saying Ukraine doesn't have the manpower to defeat Russia. Fred Plekin begins our coverage out front tonight in Kyiv. And, and Fred, this is an incredible moment. Uh, you have been there in Kyiv as this uh, you know, cloak and dagger, as I've been describing. But all this is going on. What more are you learning? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is certainly a critical moment right now in Kiev, and all this has been going on behind the scenes really since Monday. That's the first time that we heard that there was this disagreement between Valery Zeluzhny, the top general, and Volodymyr Zelensky, where there was a meeting apparently between these two men, where Zelensky told Zeluzhny that he was going to fire him. Now, apparently he offered him a, a different position, possibly an ambassadorship in some European country. Really unclear whether or not that's really the case. But we do know that apparently Valery Zeluzhny said he would decline that offer, and Zelensky told him, well, he's still going to fire him. Now, since then, all of political Kiev has been waiting for some sort of decree from the Ukrainian president, saying whether or not he was really going to fire uh, General Valery Zeluzhny, and of course also who the possible successor could be. And still, there has not been any sort of decree that's been issued by Zelensky. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of speculation going on here at what is, you're absolutely right, an extremely critical moment for the Ukrainians on the battlefield, Aaron. And Fred, I mean, you, look, this is a huge task for Zelensky. He, he, he knows uh, some of the realities here. Zelensky is incredibly popular. Ukrainians have an incredible amount of faith in him. I mean, if we look at the poll numbers uh, in December, 88% say they trust Zelensky, 62% say they trust Zelensky. Zelensky knows this. So getting to a point where you have to fire the guy, that says so much on its own. I mean, this is a huge gamble for Zelensky. I think it certainly is. And you know, one of the things that we're also seeing here is that the Russians are already trying to capitalize on this. In fact, the Kremlin spokesman, Dmitry Peskov, he said, he came out and he said, look, all of this shows that things aren't going well for the Ukrainians on the battlefield, that their counteroffensive failed, and now that there's all these problems between the civilian and the military leadership. So they're already trying to capitalize on it uh, as well. I think one of the big things that we're going to look for in the next hours, really, uh, is who the possible successor could be if and when Valery Zeluzhny gets fired. Now, there's two people who are very much or, or have been handled as very much top candidates for them. One of them is, uh, is Alexander Sirsky, who is currently the head of the Ukrainian land forces. He's also someone who really made a name for himself in the early stages of Russia's invasion uh, of Ukraine, also defending Kiev. And then there's Kirill Budanov, who's the head of the military intelligence service. And you know those pictures that you were showing at the beginning of that daring raid against that Russian ship, that was Budanov's agency, Aaron. Hmm. Interesting. And that coming now, uh, perhaps very telling. Fred, thank you very much. Live in Kyiv, where all this is happening. And as Putin is capitalizing on what's going on in Ukraine, he's also brutally punishing rivals at home to shore support. We've been closely following the story of the Russian journalist Vladimir Karamurza here out front. He was imprisoned nearly two years ago after calling Putin's government a, quote, regime of murderers. Now we are learning Karamurza has been moved to one of Russia's most brutal penal colonies. And Matthew Chance filed this report out front. This is the last time Vladimir Karamurza appeared in public. 
his prison uniform flickering on a court TV screen in January as he praised Russians who, like him, oppose the war in Ukraine. He's already serving a 25-year sentence for criticising the Kremlin. Now, the dissident's wife tells CNN her husband has been unexpectedly moved to one of Russia's toughest Siberian prison colonies. The reason for his transfer, apparently, was that he had been declared a consistent violator of the rules of serving his, uh, his sentence. For example, a violation that his um, pillow was not put in the right way on the bed, uh, another violation that his um, uh, button on his shirt was not that he should was not buttoned all the way. So these are all uh, these are all really petty, petty little you know violations. Why do you think the authorities are hmm. are using those kinds of tactics? What are they trying to do? I believe that everything is being done to isolate those political prisoners who refuse to be silent even behind bars, and of course to intimidate others. For years, Vladimir Karamazov has been one of the Kremlin's fiercest and bravest critics. This was us in 2015, after he'd recovered from what he says was a deliberate poisoning. But his opposition to the Kremlin never faltered, especially after the invasion of Ukraine in 2022. This regime that is in power in our country today, it's not just corrupt, it's not just kleptocratic, it's not just authoritarian. It is a regime of murderers. And Karamazov is now one of several key Russian opposition figures, including the most well-known, Alexei Navalny, who've been locked up as President Vladimir Putin tightens his grip on power. Meanwhile, Yevgenia Karamazov tells me she's had just seven short phone calls with her husband in the two years since his arrest. The last phone call came before, just before New Year, and it was a 15-minute call, the first one in over half a year. I had to take away the phone from one kid after five minutes and give it to his sibling because I wanted to make sure that all three of them got to talk to their daddy. It is heartbreaking for his family. <laughs> and for Russia, say critics, this growing Kremlin fear of any political challenge. Well, Erin, there's no reaction tonight from the Kremlin, which, of course, tries to distance itself from the imprisonment of critics like Vladimir Karamazov. But the truth is, as Russia prepares to stage presidential elections next month, elections meant to confirm Vladimir Putin for another six years, this crackdown on dissidents inside of Russia looks set to continue. Erin, back to you. All right, Matthew, thank you very much. And next, Trump's critics now pinning their hopes of getting Trump kicked off the ballot on the words of Justice Antonin Scalia. Antonin Scalia, what did he once say? Plus, Trump's legal problems are costing him so much money that he is now losing the race for campaign cash massively to Biden. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. 
Tonight, not stepping down. We are learning exclusively that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis has no plans to recuse herself from the Georgia election case against Trump. This, of course, comes in the face of growing scrutiny against Willis over claims that she misused taxpayer funds while having an affair with the lead prosecutor she hired for the case, Nathan Wade. Nathan Wade, of course, received hundreds of thousands of dollars for his work on the case and has paid for trips to Miami and San Francisco with Willis, according to court records. Nick Valencia is out front. Fonnie Willis, defiant. Sources tell CNN the embattled Fulton County District Attorney has no plans of stepping aside or to recuse herself. Willis, an elected Democrat, indicted former President Donald Trump for his defiance following the 2020 election. Now herself, digging in and not backing down. Something she has done through the nearly three-year investigation into his efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia, even when Trump attacked her personally. And in the wings, they've got a local racist Democrat district attorney in Atlanta. The comment does not concern me at all. Um, it's ridiculous in nature, but I support his right to be protected by the First Amendment and say what he likes. Though with a warning not to cross the line. People have the right to say whatever they choose to say as long as it does not rise to the level of threats against myself, against my staff, or against my family. The attacks and threats have followed her through her time in office. Been called the N-word so many times that I don't even think I hear it anymore. It's not going to stop anything that I'm doing. Especially as she's taken on high-profile cases, like the racketeering case against the rapper Young Thug. I've made no secret about it, nor any apology, that as the district attorney of Fulton County, my number one focus is targeting gangs and a RICO case against the Atlanta public school system roughly a decade ago. What happens with a no excuses policy? Willis has grown accustomed to living in the crosshairs of both the public and her political enemies. I knew when I was making the endeavor into several cases um, that those cases were against high profile individuals that I would be threatened. Um, did I know in a matter of a couple of months it'd be a hundred and something threats? No. The most recent attacks against her coming after the explosive court filing accusing her of financially benefiting from an improper romantic relationship with her top deputy, Nathan Wade. And while she's defended Wade's professional credentials, she has not directly addressed the allegations. The DA has not been a, a good crisis communicator. She may be silent now, but she's talked openly in the past about her relationships. I do think that a relationship is important, and that love is important, and that you are better with a partner. Um, I have always limited my dating pool to African-American men, um, and I've done that very intentionally. Now she's preparing to defend herself. District Attorney. A judge has given Fonnie Willis a Friday deadline to respond to these claims in writing. Sources within the DA's office tell us that Willis is not expected to address the allegations directly, but instead is expected to argue that the defense attorneys who are trying to get this case dismissed over these claims are wrong on the law. Aaron. Nick, thank you very much. And a fascinating view on Fonnie Willis. Uh, out front now, Ryan Goodman, out front legal expert. So, it is interesting just to watch her over time, the cases she's dealt with, the situations she's dealt with, the pressure she's come under. Um, it gives some context to this, that she's not going to step down. She's no plans to recuse herself over these allegations. She hired that she hired someone who was not competent because of an imp improper relationship and then uh, used the money uh, for uh, lavish vacations. Those are the allegations. Do you think it's a mistake that she's not recusing in this case? Um, it's a difficult decision for her because I think at some point she might need to 
decide she has to recuse in order to save the case. But she's currently deciding to stay on to save the case, because if she were removed, then it might put the whole case into turmoil. Who knows who, what her replacement will decide to do, because there are a lot of decisions that go into it, and especially a replacement that comes in after this cloud has come over the case. That also might be a difficulty for that person to continue to pursue the case. So at this point, she's right. Like, I do think on the law, it doesn't work to disqualify her, even if the allegations are true. But there's still this issue of ethical violations that are not about disqualifying her, disqualifying her from the case, but whether or not she can hold on inside the office. Oh, and, and, and as you say, down the line, uh, it, could, it could cause risk to the case. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you also uh, tonight about the Supreme Court getting ready to hear oral arguments in a case on whether Trump can be disqualified from being on the ballot, right? So you've got the Georgia case, you've got the uh, Jack Smith case. We're also waiting on a decision there uh, on immunity. And then you've got this case on whether Trump can be disqualified from the ballot uh, because of the uh, actions on January 6th. So what's fascinating is that the groups trying to get Trump removed are using the words of the late Justice Anson Scalia. They're using his words, his arguments, uh, conservative giant, to justify taking Trump off the ballot. What's happening? So they have dug up, essentially, a case in which he didn't write the majority opinion, he wrote a a dissenting opinion. It's 2014, and in the case, he says something that's very favorable to their side, it seems. They need to argue that the president is an officer of the United States under the 14th Amendment and therefore can be disqualified from office from having engaged in an insurrection. That's the big legal debate. Well, Justice Scalia said, essentially, the words are, except where the Constitution or valid federal law provides otherwise, all officers of the United States must be appointed by the president. For them, that's a big deal, because that means that there are other officers who are not appointed by the president. Who is that? The president. But the sentence goes on to say, by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. So, you know, grammatologists would have kind of a field day with this sentence, because they could say, oh, all it really means is that there's some who are not appointed by the president with the advice of the Senate. But then... Scalia actually writes a letter to a professor, asks him about the ambiguity, and he says, no, I mean the president is an officer of the United States. And because of that letter, it does seem to be that Scalia lines up in favor of disqualification. Wow. Which is a very, very incredible. Many reasons you wish you weren't late just here, but wow, would we want to hear what he had to say. All right. Thanks so much to Ryan. And next, a warning shot. The RNC reporting its lowest cash on hand in 10 years, in a decade. This comes just as we're learning just how much Trump's legal issues are costing him, majorly falling behind Biden in the race for campaign cash. Plus, a Ph.D. student thought he was studying the, quote, a chicken from hell. But guess what he wound up discovering? will explain. Tonight, follow the money. The Republican National Committee reporting its lowest cash on hand figure in a decade. The Democrats, on the other hand, have a nearly three times cash advantage. This comes as we are learning about what President Biden and former President Trump have in their war chests and how they're spending it so far. So Harry Anton is with me and you have been digging into all of this. And I'm glad you have because when I read articles on this and I try to add the numbers up, it is completely nonsensical. (laughs) It's like, oh, they have this, but they have this and they don't. Okay, 75 different committees. Yeah. Let's get to the bottom line. Biden has a lot more cash than Trump. Yeah. Okay. what does that say? Yeah, it says a a number of things. You know, if you look at the cash on hand for the actual campaign committees, what you see is that Biden's campaign has about $13 million more cash on hand than Donald Trump's campaign does. That was what you would expect 
because incumbents tend to raise more money than challengers. Granted, Trump is kind of a quasi-challenger or quasi-incumbent in this case. But as you hinted in that opening, when you add in the Democratic National Committee's fundraising, the amount of money that Biden and Democrats have greatly dwarfs any amount of money that the Republicans have at this point. So as we're going into the new year, as we're looking at the potentially spending money in these swing states, this cash on hand is a major advantage for Democrats and something that Joe Biden could use given the polling numbers that he has right now. All right. And when you look at how the money is being spent, Biden can uh, spend it on a campaign. Trump is spending an astonishing amount on legal fees. Um, and Nikki Haley is seizing on that. Here's what she just said. Sure. He's used $50 million of his campaign funds on legal fees. Do you really think he's going to win against Joe Biden when he's spending all of that money on legal fees? He's not. What's the context here? Yeah, what's the context? If you look at, uh, you know, uh, committees affiliated, you know, with PACs uh, with Trump, what you see is that they have spent $55 million in the last year on legal fees. And more than that, what you see is it's not just that they spent $55 million on the year. They spent more in the second half of the year than the first half of the year. And, you know, to be honest with you, if they weren't spending this much money on legal fees, Donald Trump's campaign and the affiliated PACs and everything like that, they'd have a lot more money. Part of the reason Republicans are having some money wow. problems right now is because of all the money that they have to be spending in the court system. Right. And so he said, well, I guess I'm spending all this money on legal fees. Might as well use the court for my campaign. Yeah. That's what he's been doing. Yeah. Um, but how important is the outcome of what happens in the court where he's spending all this money to voters? Yeah, it's exactly right. You know, it's not just that he's spending a ton of money. It's also the fact that I think the big X factor in this campaign going forward is what happens in these four different trials, right? These four different criminal trials. Because right now, if you look at the key swing states, what you see is that Donald Trump holds a lead across them by four points. But if Trump is convicted and sentenced to prison, what we see is a very different campaign, Biden winning by 10 points. So a lot will come down right. to those big trials. Nearly 15-point swing if that happens. So the dates of when these trials start matter a lot. Yeah. So don't get a conviction if you don't have a trial. Yeah. Out front next, a PhD student discovering a new species by accident. Wait till you see it. Tonight, an accidental incredible discovery. Oklahoma State University revealing that a 28-year-old PhD student has discovered an entirely new dinosaur species. So this is a rendering of that species, a new one that we know, the Eonephron infernalis. And this is what it would have looked like when it lived about 66 million years ago. Now, the PhD student thought he was studying the bones of the Anzueli, which is a bird-like dinosaur referred to fondly as the chicken from hell. Well, you can see why. But then he noticed that the bones here were even smaller than that, so he sent them out for further inspection. The results revealed the truth. It was not a chicken from hell. It was a totally new dinosaur species. He said it made his heart skip a beat. That's love. Thanks for joining us. It's time for Anderson. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.